Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection and unify risk management. Get $1,000 off Vanta by going to vanta.com slash hardfork. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash hardfork for $1,000 off. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. I'm taping IRL in Miami today with one of my oldest tech sparring partners, Keith Raboy. He's a member of the PayPal mafia, the cabal of billionaires, etc. That includes Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, and Reid Hoffman. After PayPal, Raboy held executive roles at companies like LinkedIn and Square and then pivoted to the world of venture capital, first working with Coastal Ventures and now with the Founders Fund run by his old pal, Peter Thiel. Even as a VC, Raboy had continued to found companies like the real estate platform Opendoor and the e-commerce company OpenStore. So I wanted to chat to him about his approach to investing versus founding companies, Teal's announcement that he's leaving the board of Meta and generally all things Silicon Valley, even though he's one of the key architects for moving tech out of California and into Florida. Keith Raboy, welcome to Sway. Pleasure to be here. Welcome to Miami. Thank you. I was just complaining about the weather. It's a bit chilly here. It's you promised. It's 67 degrees. Yeah, it's 75 degrees in San Francisco, if, if but you, okay. If you stay for another day, we'll have it 80 degrees and sunny. Okay, good. Um, congratulations, by the way, of becoming a father. I also had more children during the pandemic. How is that going? Thank you. It's going great. Yeah? How old are your kids? They're both seven months. You've really changed your life. I know. We changed locations. We have kids shredding everything, reinventing ourselves. Right, absolutely. So let's talk about that. So you defected here. How long have you been here now? I moved December 10th, 2020. So right after the pandemic started. So talk about that, because you loved San Francisco. You had a beautiful house in San Francisco. Talk about the move, because sometimes I tease you. I'm like, you you talk a lot about how much you hate San Francisco. I'm like, your girlfriend broke up with you. Move (laughs) along. (laughs) I lived in San Francisco. You can't just like love it here. You have to trash it there, but go ahead. Well, the world changed. You know, I lived in San Francisco professionally for 21 years. You did. But since 2017, the city's been been in massive decay. Mm -hmm. Crime, homelessness, uh, housing's always been an issue. The taxation, the regulation of the state globally Mm -hmm. has been a problem for entrepreneurs and for people who want to be successful. And so we decided to, and then the COVID policies hit, and San Francisco went into an extreme lockdown mode, Mm -hmm. masks, non-scientific behavior. And as we explored the rest of the country, we realized that there were smarter people with better policies all across the United States. Or policies you liked better. Policies that are actually better. Okay. Substantively better. Uh, So we decided to vote with our feet, which is the original foundation of this country, is Mm -hmm. that the way to get better policies is to give people choice. Mm -hmm. And so we have 50 states, all of laboratories of democracy, Mm -hmm. and that people have emigrated to Florida because they like the choices here. Mm -hmm. Last year, 220,000 people moved to Florida. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, the fastest growing state for entrepreneurs. And capital is uh, always mobile. Entrepreneurs have been less mobile. There was a perception of network effects in the Bay Area. But the network effects have atrophied. There was a social scene of which you were quite active. I mean, I don't mean yeah, parties. Yeah, there was definitely a network. Yeah, no, like too, networking, but... I mean, part of the job of a venture capitalist or an entrepreneur is to recruit, recruit talent. Mm-hmm. And so having that density of talent around you allows you to succeed as an entrepreneur, executive, or 
founder or VC. That said, there's downsides to network effects as well. Um, network effects can also breed complacency and sort of a monoculture, stereotypical you know, way of thinking that everybody conforms to. And the people who create the best companies tend to have different views. They're divergent views. There's a reason why most people think these companies are stupid or insane or impossible when they're founded. Mm-hmm. Every one of the companies I invested in, my parents, my friends, all thought were crazy. From YouTube to Airbnb, nobody thought these were possible. Nobody thought PayPal would work. Well, that's a typical, that's a typical trope about right. things so like that. Right, so that's, a, it's a really important, though, that therefore founders be in an environment that doesn't reinforce one simple way of thinking about the world. You need diversity of thought. And the good news is when a network effect tips, there's other places to build a network. This is Miami. I feel like a little bit like Noah and building an arc. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed two entrepreneurs. I needed two designers, two VCs, and put mm-hmm. them all in this boat, and we're going to Miami. Right. So, by the way, there was tech going on in Miami here before you got here. But let, let me get back to—let me finish with San Francisco, is that you were part of that, building that culture. You were quite high up on the food chain there. It provided you an atmosphere for success. Um did you have any any feelings of gratitude toward that culture? I don't think so. Because you kick it in the teeth quite a I bit. Don't, I don't think San Francisco contributed to anything. If anything, it was always retarding success. Mm. The Bay Area as a whole was a little bit better off. So we built PayPal down in Palo Alto. Yes, Mountain you did. View. I'm talking about the whole Bay Area. It was Area. only post-2010 that companies really started moving to the city. Mm-hmm. And I think San Francisco was never designed. I wasn't ta- I was talking about the whole Bay Area. Yes, yeah, so the Bay California Area. California itself. We were very intentionally insulated from San Francisco and San Francisco mm-hmm. politics, mm-hmm. San Francisco real estate, mm-hmm. by building PayPal down in Palo Alto and Mountain View. Mm-hmm. And Google, Palantir, Facebook, sure, et cetera, were all built down there. Mm-hmm. Post-2010, a lot of entrepreneurs, for social reasons, really wanted to move to the city. Mm-hmm. And I think the city never really had the appropriate culture, politics, and actually infrastructure to support tech. Mm-hmm. And so I think it took a few years for that to be obvious. It became starkly obvious when, unfortunately, the mayor, Ed Lee, who is pro-tech, died, mm-hmm. and that created a vacuum. And that mm-hmm. vacuum was filled very fast by people who were anti-tech. Now, some felt he was too kind to tech, Ed Lee, rest in peace, but I think he was considered sort of a tech apologist to some. Well, I don't think there's anything to apologize for in tech. Tech and capitalism have built the foundations of the modern world and have improved every possible aspect of modern life. And so there's nothing to apologize. If anything, we should be encouraging more tech. Fortunately, Florida and Miami specifically understand that the future is being built by math and tech, and they want to be the center of math, tech, and capitalism. So when we looked at moving our office back in PayPal in 2002 to San Francisco, the largest San Francisco-based company was CNET. Mm -hmm. And so Peter Thiel said, that's ridiculous. We want to be bigger and more important than CNET, so we're not putting the company in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until, like, really Twitter, Yelp um, started started in San Francisco. Twitter and Yelp particularly made a lot of sense. Yelp was serving uh, a demographic, an urban demographic, so it's very logical. Mm -hmm. Airbnb was founded in the city, which also makes sense. So the foundation was built mostly by companies that had a reason to be in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. but then everybody started moving to San Francisco for life, perceived lifestyle reasons without realizing how antithetical San Francisco would be to technology success. And they've all escaped and run away. But in the California, you know, most Google's, of them are in California. Google's still in California. I think people you know, were Netflix not as bold. Is, I think people yeah. were not as bold until COVID hit. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't as bold. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't was not willing to move until after COVID hit. And then that enlightened me to new options. Mm-hmm. I always thought there was just a trade-off. Mm-hmm. And I was basically blindfolded. When COVID hit, it allowed people to experiment. 
mm-hmm. with very low cost, yes, low opportunity cost. Yes, everyone accelerated. Everything accelerated. People can we'll get keep to that their current job, mm-hmm. let's say at Facebook, Google, and try a new city, whether it's Denver, Dallas, Austin, Phoenix, Seattle, New York, Miami, Nashville, Chicago, wherever. Mm-hmm. And they realized there were places that were run much better with a better trade-off between cost and return. Mm-hmm. So basically, COVID really highlighted that you can't treat people like citizens that are you have a monopoly on. Citizens are now customers. They're customers of the government. They're customers of the state. And they're going to look at the value proposition they receive, just like when we buy products. Mm-hmm. Is this the best phone I can buy? Is mm-hmm. this price worth what I get out of it? And consumers are now asking that question of their mayors. The mayor of Miami, the governor of Florida, treat citizens like customers. What can we offer you? How can we help? And that's their goal, and that's how they frame everything. You don't see a lot of the big companies, though. Apple still has a beautiful headquarters in California. Google is continuing having its famous yep. campus there. Netflix, uh, all the big ones remain in that. Facebook has its famous campus. They have dispersed their population, I guess, in that way. So what happens to them from your so, perspective? Well, I think they're going to decay over time. Mm-hmm. And this is a healthy thing in technology. Mm-hmm. The people who used to be incumbents when you started in the industry were AOL. You wrote a book about AOL. Mm-hmm. We, then you'd cover Yahoo. And then you'd cover, you know, Microsoft. And then, mm-hmm. you know, most of them... Have, I just move on from yeah, but most of, most carcass of our, to carcass. But, but most of them job. become artifacts of history. Mm-hmm. And Facebook eventually will be as well. So I don't really care if those companies stay in California. I want to build the next generation here. Most tech people pretend otherwise, but the tax situation was also... Surprise! Well, it, it is, and when we filtered, explain so, that. Explain yeah, the so we, there's no state income tax in Florida. In California, for wealthy people, charge basically charges 13 percent on top of the federal tax rate. So basically, you don't get to keep half of your money if you're wealthy in California. If I work half the year for the government and half the year for myself, the government is controlling my life, and that's just not acceptable for me and my family. So when we filtered cities in the U.S., my husband and I had a couple criteria: uh, warm weather. We wanted a tax rate that was reasonable, which we defined as sub-5%. So many cities and states qualify. We wanted an international airport because I have to travel for business and we need to travel. Mm -hmm. And then fourth, we wanted some version of a cosmopolitan cuisine Mm -hmm. so we could go out to eat, have a refresh rate on restaurants Mm -hmm. and things to do. And then I wanted a Barry's workout program. <laughs> we'll you apply those five simple criteria, yeah. and Miami is by far the best choice. How would you call yourself? A conservative? What are yeah, you? Yeah, I, I identify as a conservative. All right. So it's also politics you prefer here at this moment in time. I do, but also what I think my friends noticed, most of the friends who moved from the Bay Area with me are not conservative. Mm-hmm. And what they find that's refreshing is here people are allowed to have different views, and you have to have a dialogue. Basically, half the state voted for Trump, half voted for Biden. Mm -hmm. And so any way you live your life, you're going to encounter people who have Mm -hmm. different views. And it's very refreshing for people to expect to engage and have discussions as opposed to just finger pointing. I think that the, I think that tech is liberal as a canard. I would say libertarian light is my. But if you look at who they give their money to, it's Democrats, other mm-hmm. than Peter. Right, that's true. That's fair. We'll get to him in a minute. I, I talked to Mayor Suarez, who you were just referring to. He said that Miami doesn't have a Stanford, MIT. Can you have a tech utopia here without the kind of powerhouse research and feeder institutions? Well, I believe a lot of people who powered the tech revolution in the Bay Area moved to the Bay Area because there was ambitious opportunities. They mm-hmm. weren't born and raised there. Mm-hmm. So MIT grads, that Harvard grads, University. Wonderful. University of Chicago, mm-hmm. Champaign, Illinois, where Mark Andreessen and Max Levchin are from, mm-hmm. uh, Steve, uh, Javed and Steve from yes, YouTube they all, like They all move there. Move there like people move to Hollywood. Right. Or so I think people will move here. Over time, we can build a first but rate. Stanford was critically important to that. In some in some fields, right. less so than people remember. Like mm-hmm. Facebook wasn't built by Stanford grads. No, it was Harvard. But right. The go- <laughs> go- search particularly. Yeah. Um, obviously, Yahoo and Google both had grad students mostly um, building those companies. 
But fundamentally, I think people overrate the importance of Stanford. Mm -hmm. We will, over time, have first-rate educational institutions here. So what does the state of California do to re get, to get itself to reinvigorate? Does this just happen? I mean, I know— I think it's a conceptual-level framework, which is treat your citizens like customers. They're mm -hmm. going to have choices. You have to get safety and crime under control. Mm -hmm. Like, people here will walk out at night at 10 p.m. by themselves. Mm -hmm. Nobody in San Francisco does that. No, I just did that, Keith. That's not Where? true. In the Castro, and where I live. It's like a ghost town. You're it's like not. Crazy. It's not true. That's not true. It, it I is. was actually thrilled all the tech bros were gone. Honestly, it was not. I'm it's sorry like to Bernie tell you. Man week. No, like no, no, left. it was not. I'm telling you, it was lovely. It was lovely. I love that city. I'm thrilled. Well, you could at least park on the street because there's nobody uh, else in the know, gas I don't have a car, but that's okay. Um, let's go. Uh, you were executive at digital payments company Square until 2013. Square is now Block, as in blockchain, so doubling down on cryptocurrency. CEO Jack Dorsey, you're very close to, wants it to be possible for anyone to mine Bitcoin from home. Talk a little bit about where that's going because Bitcoin prices have plummeted from their high in November. It's wiped out $600 billion of market value. Price has risen in February. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you look at, at this? Because all I saw last night was Super Bowl was Crypto Bowl, you know, and some of them were quite good. The Larry David one was good. Coinbase, I think, was there. Um, so talk about where that is now because you were very early and one of the first people to really... I think it was Wences Casares who alerted me first, but about uh, cryptocurrency and stuff. So the way I think about crypto is it's an ingredient. Mm -hmm. And it, it, like any technology, it can be used to enable and empower new value propositions. But I start with what's the value proposition to a real person in the real world? Yes. So I funded a company called Royal, which is reinventing the music industry. Mm -hmm. It uses crypto and tokens underneath to enable revenue sharing and royalty sharing in a way that wouldn't have made sense with traditional monetary systems. Mm -hmm. But we don't talk to the end user like that we're a crypto company. Right. Like when you're buying a fraction of a Calvin Harris song and getting an right. NFT with Calvin that gives you certain rights, mm -hmm. it's not the crypto is like underneath the hood. Mm -hmm. So that's how I think about all kinds of technology. It's a very Apple-esque perspective. Mm -hmm. Like the technology only serves human needs. So mm -hmm. I, it's like, what is the human need and how does technology make this cheaper, better, faster? So where is crypto going from your perspective? It's just a, a means to an end. I think that's what you're essentially saying. How do you look at Bitcoin? It's obviously a speculative asset. That's It's like gold or anything else, presumably. I don't know if you think that, but where do you imagine um, that happening? Where, where, what do you imagine happening in this space? Because Miami has been one of the spots. Miami has been a center of crypto. People yeah. who are crypto-friendly are building new crypto companies. And it's unclear to me where it goes. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know the future. I usually don't try to predict the future in any event anyway. I really try to find founders that I think are exceptional, extraordinary, mm -hmm. and can achieve heroic things and are somewhat borderline irrational, mm -hmm. uh, but with big ambition. And so to me, if a founder is working in crypto and has a goal in mind that would change the world, and I think they have the talent and skill to pull it off, I'm an investor. Mm -hmm. And if they're interested in healthcare, mm -hmm. which has nothing to do with crypto, mm -hmm. if I think they have the right DNA to pull off the innovation, then I'm going to invest. So I'm agnostic to where a founder wants to go. Right. I'm in the business of founder but assessment. But how do you look at the sort of the interest in it? I mean, is Well, the it interest over... is, is revealing. Like, yeah. talented people are voting with their feet, just like mm -hmm. they're voting to move to Miami. They're voting with their feet to invest in crypto. Mm -hmm. And that is usually a good signal that there's a there there. But I have to, I have to pick the right company. Right. At the end of the day, if there's one company that's super successful in crypto, it doesn't do me any good to have invested in the, the other 99. One. Yeah, which so happened. For, yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah. So, for example, if you'd invested in, in most automotive companies and they, they weren't run by a person named Elon Musk, you would have lost a lot of money over the last 20 mm -hmm. years. Same thing with SpaceX back then. Now you could build a space company and it doesn't require 
uh, someone quite as good as Elon. Mm -hmm. But in 2003 to five, if you had funded somebody that wasn't named Elon, creating a new space company, it would have been a disaster. Mm -hmm. So we're in the, what we call the end of one business. Is this the one person on the planet who can pull this off? Right. So I don't know. But when I, if I meet a founder who's in crypto, who can pull something interesting off using yeah. crypto, then absolutely I would love to be an investor. Right. Are there too many grifters around? Or it feels very griftery sometimes. But well, that was the beginning of the internet thing, felt that way. Well, yeah. Too. So anytime you have a gold rush, mm -hmm. a new novel platform, uh, iPhone 2 had some of that. Yes. Imagine any new platform yes. will enable Facebook some people to speculate economy. and make money yeah. quickly before things settle and stabilize. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's some truth to that. Right. What was the sheep company you worked for? Uh, uh, Superpoke. I didn't, <laughs> Slide was the name of the company, but Superpoke was our best was, yes, brand. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That, but, you know, you know, you went on to do other things. Um, that, but that was the Facebook app economy rush. It was. Rush. We were Slide. We were pioneering yeah. that. We didn't do as well as we wanted. Um, speaking of Facebook, let's talk about what's going on there because the stock market is also seeing some rumbling going on. And it's important to a lot of the startups you fund. Robinhood has lost a lot of companies. All the SPACs are down below their – everyone's down below their initial public offerings, a lot of them, not everybody. But Facebook lost daily users for the first time in 18-year history. Shares dropped 22%. They've stayed low. They haven't moved up very much. Very tiny little amounts. Mark lost $29 billion in net worth. I don't think he cares. Well, Elizabeth uh, Warren can send him a refund. <laughs> <laughs> Leave Elizabeth out of this. All right. So the beginning of uh, the downfall, what do you think what, when you were looking at it? You were a very early Facebook person. or had No, I, unfortunately, I did not invest in Facebook. Yeah, you didn't. But No, I, but, reg I severely regret that. But. Yeah. But what do you imagine is happening there? Um, well, the brand know. is tarnished on the core product. Yeah. So that, and I think that's an unsolvable problem. Right. I think Instagram still has room to run. And I think meta is too far away. If you think about it, a metaphor... I subscribe to is Mark is a lot like Bill Gates, mm -hmm. he which is, is he is Thank someone you. who recognizes a business opportunity mm -hmm. and is maybe the best in the planet at mm -hmm. executing against it violently. Yep. Mm -hmm. Bill Gates was never really on the cutting edge of technology. Mm -hmm. And that's why Steve Jobs, as you, you knew well, mm -hmm. used to make fun of him. He like did. he used to like constantly lampoon and caricature him. Mm -hmm. So Mark is going into meta, which is a cutting edge technology without the skills to be a cutting-edge technologist. That's not what he does. No. Facebook was basically so a combination it? of Friendster and MySpace. Mm -hmm. Very, very brilliantly executed. Yeah, he's an excellent... His, his Bill, I mean, Bill Gates, that's a compliment. Copier. But it also means that you have to understand your own strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Meta is a cutting-edge technology. That team that he has and the way they promote people is not based upon cutting-edge technology. So mm -hmm. I think it's going to be a very significant challenge. And because of the macro environment, they can't buy their way out of the problem. Right. So typically what you would do, and I'm sure, and Mark is definitely savvier than me about this, is buy things right. that have demonstrated the cutting edge technology that mm -hmm. you want. But right now that's a non-starter for Facebook. Right. So they're kind of trapped in this prison where they have the wrong team. So they're not creative enough to innovate their way out. They Never can't, have and they can't, and they can't buy their way out because right. of the regulatory regime mm -hmm. in, in, in this administration and mm -hmm. generally globally. Well, it's not, listen, it's not just the Biden administration. There's no, it's not, but I this administration is going to be even more conservative. Yeah, but it started under Trump. It's sorry, it this is did. not, absolutely. this is a bipartisan uh, No, absolutely. Thing. There's no, that's why there's no way out. No you can't just wait Facebook. for a real. They haven't done any favors. Yeah, you can't really wait for an election uh, to change how, this. How impactful was the Haugen testimony and the other, everything else around them? Hard to tell. I think that what they really have at a political level mm -hmm. is they have no friends on the right now, mm -hmm. and they have the left who hates them for other reasons. Mm -hmm. And so when you have no allies— I don't allies, think the center likes them very much either. Probably not, but fundamentally, if you don't have allies on either side, it's really hard to build uh, a foundation uh, mm -hmm. for your agenda. Mm -hmm. And they really have alienated you know, my friends on the right, and it's very obvious in the public domain that the left doesn't like Facebook. Right, and, and other tech companies don't.
That's true too. And so I think that also starts start starving them of talent. I think it's very hard to recruit for the best and brightest of the next generation mm-hmm. with these issues. So, so a couple of things that's going with them. Also, Apple has become their regulator, essentially, with the privacy settings. I think their overreach on privacy is very apparent to people. I think they definitely overreached. Um, and then you have the meta investment. Do you think it's worth doing that? Would you do that if you were him? I would only do it if I felt I had the team that was best situated on the planet to succeed. Yeah. So, for example, Apple has some of the right ingredients, less so <laughs> than they used to, but some. Yeah. So They've managed to stay pretty innovative for a bunch of old guys. But another way to think about it is Amazon. Amazon wouldn't be very good at creating Meta either. No. Amazon's a wonderful company. Mm-hmm. Well-run, you know, incredibly successful. But you need to tie your target and your skills together mm-hmm. to, to so increase. So who's best suited? Well, Apple... Of a large, of a large pre-existing you need company, money. possibly Netflix, but they would have to change their culture. Microsoft to, with the purchase of Activision, not not a crazy idea actually, because there's a use case, there's a value proposition. A lot of things have started with gaming or sports. Yes, they become mainstream products. Yeah. Like DirecTV started with sports, mm-hmm. and so I, I don't think it's a crazy strategy of, uh, for Microsoft to try. Mm-hmm. So and but and it could be small companies like Snapchat and others who are very Snap, creative. Yeah, Snap is creative, highly creative. And you know, and actually, Evan showed some flair of wanting to get down this direction years ago with even spectacles. Yep, and he's still doing it. I just yep. saw the recent ones. So you imagine what will happen to a company then, like uh, like Meta? Because your your friend Peter Thiel just left the board to focus on getting Trump Republicans elected to midterms. I'd love any thoughts on that and why you think he left. I haven't discussed it with Peter. I think it's solely about time allocation. Mm -hmm. Like after X years, there's other things he wants to invest his time in, including as his partner. I prefer him to be making new investments rather than sitting on old investments. Right, right. So just tired of it? or Well, it's like 15 or so years. And there's an opportunity cost to serving on the board of a public company Mm -hmm. when you're doing early stage investing, which is what we do at Founders Fund. Every public company board I'm on comes at the price of not finding the next generation seed investment. So I'm on one public board, and it actually does consume my time, and I may be missing some but founder. he seems to be wanting to do a lot of political stuff, too. Yeah. He has the right to have interest outside I get that. of, of I want, work, too. He wants to give his money away to D.D. Vance. He can, that showed. Fine. Um, anyway, um, but so you so you think it's just he's just moving on? I suspect so. I haven't had a direct conversation with him about okay. it. But my guess is, like, he just wants to allocate his time differently. Okay. All right. And what, what happens then to that company? Because that, that's, I think, a lot of people. Or, or Actually, what happens to each of them, do you imagine? Let's do Apple. And then we'll get to the VC. Apple has one major dependency, which is China. And it's becoming a geo-global political Indeed. risk. Yeah. Both their supply chain and just the politics and the perception of will the American government, will the American people allow mm-hmm. a company like Apple to build stuff in China? Right. That is unclear. And we're going to have increasing hostilities towards China one yes. way or the other. And so that is the biggest risk for Apple in the next one to three years. Mm-hmm. And how do they manage that? And mm-hmm. can they manage it? It's unclear. What about um, Netflix? You mentioned Netflix. Netflix, I think, in their core business has real challenges, real mm-hmm. competition. It's you know, starting to erode. Yeah. Their advantages are eroding. They have Apple on one side, HBO on the other side. The data advantage Jeez, has right. been limited. They had a data advantage when they started producing content. Yeah, they were lapping everybody. But they're, that is no longer quite good enough. And so I think they need to think about moving into potentially hardware, potentially modern, uh, a broader view of entertainment. They've done that before. They started obviously sending DVDs, mm-hmm. and then they and then they started yeah. you know programming, mm-hmm. streaming, and then they started original content. So they have the history of reinventing themselves. Yes, and they're quite good at it. I think they always seem to make good choices. Google, Alphabet, slash. Google is a basically a monopoly business. 
And what the next act is, is unclear. Search isn't going away, but it's not the end all be all. As you may know, when you go to like a store in the real world, you walk into the store, maybe planning to buy one thing, but you wind up buying five things. Google doesn't know how to satisfy that impulse. Like when things are marketed to you, when Mm -hmm. people merchandise. Yeah. And so they need to find a growth engine. And I don't know what that's going to be. But right now they have a monopoly. So they have a great monopoly. Yeah. And it's being eroded. It's about as good a monopoly as exists in tech right now. I would say regulation is their biggest regulation, but they're not going to have serious regulation in the U.S. that's going to handicap their core business. Maybe outside the U.S., but then you can look at the allocation of the revenue and how important it is. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Dick Costello, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Keith Raboy after the break. And I'm Josh Klein, and we're the hosts of Built for Change, a podcast from Accenture. On Built for Change, we're talking to business leaders from every corner of the world that are harnessing change to reinvent the future of their business. We're discussing ideas like the importance of ethical AI or how productivity soars when companies truly listen to what their employees value. These are insights that leaders need to know to stay ahead. So subscribe to Built for Change wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, Plus, This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good, but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. So you have a long history in venture capital, your partner in Founders Fund, which is Teal's firm. My producer was recently talking to some venture capitalists who basically said venture capital today is what banking was in the 2000s. It wasn't a compliment, easy money for mediocre <laughs> dukes. Um, can you talk about the current state of venture capital and how it's changed? Because there's money everywhere. There is. And there's all kinds of new innovative ways to raise money. There is. At the end of the day, I think of my job as being primarily a consigliere for a founder. And the bundling of capital and advice is still very rare. Now, it's Mm -hmm. hard to scale. Yes. There's time. It takes Mm an incredible amount of time to give useful Mm -hmm. advice to Mm world-class founders. But insofar as you're in the business of doing that, there's no competition or there's very few. There's Mm -hmm. like three to five people I compete with, and that's it in the world. It's partially like being a pop psychologist meets a consigliere. The industry itself, what's the problem there? So the problem, what, what is happening, like banking, I think that is a fair statement, is there's a vertical integration. So everybody is becoming a full-stack venture firm, Mm -hmm. C financing, Series A financing, traditional venture capital, Series A and B, into growth capital. And we are the same. We write $1 million checks, Mm -hmm. and we write 
$200 million checks in the same week. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not a fund that's fully vertically integrated and can mm -hmm. compete for a seed fund deal of one to $2 million and power money into a great company at 200, $300 million clips, mm -hmm. you're going to get a clips. And so that's what happened in banking. These specialized banks yeah. basically disappeared. And so everybody became a large bank or they lost, you know, basically their market share. And so in venture, that has definitely happened. And so the people we compete with have a growth fund and they have a seed fund. Right. So you have to. Do you see we yourself going public? No, I don't think there's that, been talk about that. I know. That we have no desire to be a public company. Mm -hmm. But others, other firms may try it. Sort of be interesting to watch. I don't know what the benefits realistically are, other than more capital. And the last problem we have at Founders Fund is we don't need more capital. If anything, so I think big, we have too much. Bigger is what you're talking That's about. That's basically what the virtue of going public is. Just like it is for these organizations, right. it gives them capital and resources. But you think bigger is the way venture capital is going? Unfortunately, yes, for yeah. now. And I don't, I don't think that's healthy. Right. I think there's only so many founders that you want to invest in and giving them extra money maybe makes things worse. It definitely say, doesn't make things better. Yeah. So I would rather be scarcer with capital than more promiscuous or profligate. Well, that might be happening. There might be it some is, down rounds about to happen. There definitely are some companies with high burn rates, mm -hmm. prior rounds raised at high valuations based upon the prior market, mm -hmm. where the company doesn't have a lot of levers to control their burn rate fast. Mm -hmm. And those are going to get repriced yeah. very massively. And it's going to be a very painful yeah, experience. I think so. I was just talking to someone pretty smart and they were talking about that. I think you're going to see it left and right. Now, it'll take a while to get into the public domain because people are not going to be calling yeah. you to write about these right. rounds. No. You know, like <laughs> they'll I've be, already heard they'll about be, it. They'll be so. done more, yeah. you know, under oh, the yeah. radar. Yeah. But eventually it'll seep into the ether. Yeah, 100%. So you told me in 2019 that you invest in founders and get it right 30 to 40% of the time. What's your average these days? Well, average in venture is probably sub 10%, sub 1%. Mm -hmm. To me, it's like baseball. You're a Hall of Fame if you can do anything close to 30 to 40% success rate at early stage investing. By the time you're looking at a growth round, you should be 80% plus correct. Mm -hmm. And you need to be to make the economics work. Right. But what I do is I find the proverbial two kids in a garage. They have a keynote deck and nothing else. And to be able to do that 20, 30, 40% of the time correctly is pretty magical. And what percentage do you get now when you do these investments? Well, so the way it works, the market has shifted. So entrepreneurs have a lot more power. Yes, they do. Certainly than when I was growing up mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur. When you were first covering Silicon Valley, often VCs would own 40% yeah, of the do. company. That went down to 25 and then 20. And in the last two years, it's more like 15 to 20. And that's what you think you need. Yes. I mean, I think you can do the math differently. There's different strategies that one can legitimately justify, but you have to be have a fairly concentrated position in successful companies mm -hmm. uh, because the funds are so large. So let's say we had in our last fund roughly $4 billion between mm -hmm. venture and growth fund. To make our LPs happy, we need to turn that into like five, six X more money. So that's like $20 billion of returns. And let's say we owned only 10%. That means we need to be involved in companies that create $200 billion of value in two and a half years. That's right. pretty damn challenging. Yeah, that is very challenging, unless you get one. But there's not that. Well, you need happen. one that's hundreds of billions of dollars. Right, exactly. And there's very few of those. Very few of those. Um, one of the things that, that happened this year, obviously, was the trial of Elizabeth Holmes. And a lot of people said it was an indictment of Silicon Valley. And the I did not think this, this sort of fake it till you make it culture. I was like, she wasn't really a tech company, but all right. Um, what do you think? Did it cast doubt over the Valley or is it just nothing to do with it? I'm using Silicon Valley broadly. Sure. I think it's wholly removed. In fact, the other thing, I think it's a testament to the quality of Silicon Valley because mm -hmm. all of the successful investors I know that normally would invest in a company like hers passed. 
very aggressively. And yes, very they did. I've talked to a lot of them. Um, the only investors who had any note on her cap table wrote very small checks in personally, mm-hmm. which typically if a venture partner, uh, like a well-known partner mm-hmm. in a fund invests personally, it's a sign, it's a beg- negative signal that the fund doesn't want to invest. Mm-hmm. But Tim Draper is about the only person mm-hmm. that would be a reputable Silicon Valley person that invested in her cap table. And so it's not as if other people do- aren't looking for companies like hers. Right. But anybody who understood mm-hmm. uh, rudimentary chemistry knew that at least the highest level vision she was pitching was impossible. All the tests she was describing cannot be done in one box. Now, she could have done half of it in one box, maybe, mm-hmm. et cetera. But in this case, you could actually name very specific principles that would absolutely be violated, that would require revolutionizing the entire understanding of chemistry in the world. So she doesn't represent anything. I, in case. my view, no. Yeah. Deserved. And you could look at her board of directors. Yeah. They're all political types. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. not normal in Silicon Valley either. No, it's either. not at all. So another topic. Uh, Stanford professor C. Blank said, the first time you see a venture capitalist prosecuted for failing to uphold their duty as a board member, you're going to see Silicon Valley transform overnight. All it takes is one VC doing a perp walk and everyone gets the message you're responsible. You have a legal duty to do things that are bad for society. You're called to account. Do you agree with him? I do think Silicon Valley emulates um, positively and negatively. Mm-hmm. And I talked about the monoculture where people reflexively copy things like Facebook had a growth team, everybody copied a growth team without right. thinking through yep. from first principles. So if someone were to be prosecuted for some behavior, I think it would have ripple effects. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you see problematic in Silicon Valley? Who should be prosecuted? Is there companies that you go, mm, this is a problem? Or is that was that sort of an outlier? There's definitely, under the radar, there must be fraud. Like, Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley is not removed from the normal failings of humans. There's enough Silicon Valley companies with enough founders that you're going to have a representative sample to some extent of society. Mm -hmm. And in venture, one of the dynamics, because we are Mm -hmm. looking for a 30 40% Mm -hmm. success rate, is Mm -hmm. it's not terrible if I lose money sometimes. In fact, I want to lose money sometimes. It means I'm taking enough risk. If I never lost money, I would clearly not be doing my job. So I don't want to over-scrutinize things too much. It's not my job to over-scrutinize things. My LPs definitely care about net-net. Keith put $100 million invested in companies and it returned a billion, and they're happy. If I invest $100 million and it doesn't return multiples of that, they're very unhappy with me. But I don't want to be spending all my time asking too many questions because that's not my job. My job isn't to be perfect. My LPs who give me the money don't want me to be perfect. perfect. So when you're thinking about these investments, um, do you think ongoing, like subsidizing an Uber, not competitive yet, still hasn't made money, is still important, these unrealistic prices and stuff like that? Do you see that happening again? Or was that a moment? It might have been a moment. I've never been that way. I like capital efficiency from the very beginning. I'm always looking at the payback of a dollar. How fast does that get paid back? And I'm only interested personally in funding companies that have a very efficient return because that shows to me that there's real product market fit. Mm -hmm. So you shouldn't have to subsidize consumers. If consumers find your product to be valuable, Mm -hmm. they should be willing to pay for it. Pay for the iPhone. It's expensive, but Mm -hmm. they obviously find it valuable. And so I think founders need to build products that consumers are willing to pay for. And at the correct price, not at a subsidy. With a a margin, yeah. Yeah, I remember when Uber went up, Recently, someone's like, oh, it's expensive. I'm like, that's the actual cost. Like, you think a free ride across San Francisco for $4 really was a free ride. It was yeah, no there are, Right. There are some caveats where you do need to hit some level of escape velocity before the economics make sure. sense. 
absolutely like if you try to produce one iPhone, it would be ridiculously expensive. Uh, let me just go through some of your companies. Um, we're going to talk about Open Store Last, which is your current thing you're focusing on. So Ramp, explain it very briefly and what the reason is. So Ramp is a way of building software into the CFO suite mm-hmm. so that all the data, all the intelligence of what a company spends money on mm-hmm. can be stitched together save the company money, mm-hmm. and give the CFO actionable insights. Mm-hmm. So basically, you can think of like uh, Workday for HR, but for all the CFO functions, it's actually right. even more Remember valuable. CFO.com? What did that do? Oh, my God. That, yeah, that was like MyCFO.com. Yes, MyCFO. Oh, like that was personal, rich yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was right. I remember Jim, it was uh, the guy who started... Um, yeah, otherwise very successful. Netscape. Yeah, oh, this is like his uh, only failure. God, he, I remember him pitching it to me because they had the ads and it was like, I only have $10 million and I don't know what to do. I was like, that was part of the problem. Small yes. group. And he was like, what do you think? I'm like, for the people, I guess, for the people. Withco, Withco. So Withco is really interesting. It takes small businesses who are typically renting and allows them to buy mm-hmm. ownership interest in the real estate they're renting. So people would stay longer or so be the tenant, better tenants? So they, they, yeah, they, they actually own the real estate. So instead of just wasting money on rent for like, imagine you're running a restaurant, you can actually own the real estate too. Right. Okay. Open Store? So Open Store is a company that I'm actually currently serving as CEO. And what we do is we provide instant liquidity to long-tail Shopify merchants. So Shopify has been the greatest technology story over the last decade. It has. Despite people saying Amazon's monopoly, Amazon has all its power, Shopify built a direct competitor under the radar, built a $100 to $200 billion company, and 1.4 million businesses uh, sell their goods and services through Shopify stores. But the smaller side of that equation doesn't really have access to venture capital. Like if you start a Shopify store and decide you don't want to run it for the rest of your life, Mm -hmm. what are your options? So we provide instant liquidity like we do at Open Door, sort of like instant underwriting at Square, where a small business that's selling less than $10 million a year can say, you know what? I don't want to run this business anymore. And we will give them an offer in one day and take over the business and run it. And then we're going to stitch these all together into one cool decentralized department store. Okay, so decentralized department store, that's an interesting idea. It seems like an inventory-heavy model, like Open Door. Um, some. It depends which. Some businesses carry inventory, some don't. Mm-hmm. But yes, we absolutely need to forecast demand so that we have the proper inventory so we don't have like a stock out. So if you try to buy a cool, trendy shoe from us, we need that shoe. And so we definitely have inventory. You have inventory. So how, how do you think about it as competing with Amazon? How do you... Well, the goods and SKUs we buy aren't available on Amazon. More than 85% of the products that we buy are not available for sale on Amazon. So you, you approach the open store investment. Uh, it's not your typical. You founded the companies, but you weren't the CEO. Here you are the CEO, right? Yes. And you're also executive chairman. So, so But now you have all the responsibility. So why are you doing that? I felt that this opportunity was fairly unique in a couple of dimensions. One, it combined my experiences of Open Door and Square. It had micro merchants and small mm-hmm. businesses, which are my favorite thing to work with. I've been since PayPal days working with small business tools to enable people to build a business, be micro entrepreneurs, be successful. Secondly, I wanted to show that you could build a successful company in Miami. If I'm moving entrepreneurs to Miami, if I'm proselytizing mm-hmm. for Miami, I should eat the proverbial dog food and build a company mm-hmm. and show that as possible. CEO. Yeah, but in general, you don't want that. You want to found a company and well, get founder div- equity. It's very difficult to scale this. I mean, CEO is incredibly time consuming. It's emotionally time consuming. Everybody's problems in the companies are ultimately yeah. mine. Right. And they have personal crises. They have professional crises. They have family crises. They have health crises. And you inherit all that. And that definitely drains you to some extent. Now, it's energizing to be a CEO because you can build a team. You can work as a team. You can construct a team. That's very different than being a VC. That said, my primary job 
is to drive venture returns for my LPs. Right. You have your own money in this, though, correct? Uh, no. This is a founder's fund is, founders a, fund. is the largest investor right. okay. in the company. But it does consume more time than a, a normal Keith investment would. Probably three to four acts. All right. I can't let you off two things. One is politics. Here you are in Florida. You're not far from Donald Trump. How do you look at politics? You, don't bash the Biden administration right now. I'd okay. love to know where you think it's going. Well, I'm a big fan of the governor here. Um, I'm excited for He's his future. He's not a big fan of Trump right now or whatever. They seem to have a weird I don't, beef. I don't know the details. Yes, you do, but okay, fine, whatever. What do you see happening in the Republican Party? I would expect that Trump will not be the Republican nominee. Because? I think, first of all, just age. Like, truthfully, um, you he know, my, par- my parents care. are roughly the same age as Biden, and I definitely would not recommend them running for president. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so Trump, you know, same thing. is like he's past his prime. I think he's burned a lot of bridges. I think there's a, like, for example, the governor here, Ron Santos, is 43 years old. Mm-hmm. And I think it's better for society that we encourage people still in the prime mm-hmm. to run for office. So, for example, I met a current senator yesterday for breakfast, and he's in the youngest 20 percentile of the Senate in terms of age. He's, he's like my age, and he's in the youngest 20 percent. I'm like, oh, my God. Okay, beside age. So DeSantos, I think, has a great track record of success in Florida. He gets similar policies as Trump, but without the personal craziness and unpredictability, which mm-hmm. is, I think, what Americans want. Trump basically was like rolling the dice every day, and you never knew what you are going to get. And his allies never knew what they were going to get. His members of Congress who were Republican on the Hill never knew what crisis they were going to wake up to that was self-induced. Basically, his level of unforced errors was incredibly high. So I think if you took the same or close to similar policies as Trump, but were more disciplined personally and professionally, I think that's a package that the American people would support. Mm -hmm. What about among the Democrats, if you were helping them? I think they should look at a governor, someone not associated with the current administration. This administration is going to run for re-election with numbers that look like Jimmy Carter's, and we saw what happened to Jimmy Carter. So I think Governors in Colorado who've been progressive on some issues, mm-hmm. but thoughtful around There's a couple masks. Of yeah, or, or Paulus, Paulus. I just interviewed him. Or Rory Cooper in North mm-hmm. Carolina, I think would be present a much more difficult challenge for the what Republicans. About Klobuchar? Any- yeah, I think she'll have issues on the left that mm-hmm. are a little challenging. She's not that well liked on the left, but um, I think certainly would do better than Biden. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Um, uh, very last question. I'm going to make you say one thing nice about California. What do you miss? One thing, Keith. Hi- hiking. hiking. Big Sur. Big Sur. Still there, Keith. It's well, going to be okay. there till can the end. I fly end in it? and out? No. <laughs> yes, you can. Not easily in Big Sur, actually. <laughs> you can. Not me. Not me and one no, of your drones. They, they don't have a, like, they, you, have to go, you have to go fairly far away to Monterey. Yeah, that's true. Well, Keith, Big I'm Sur. Trying, Big Sur is waiting for you still. Cool. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Keith Ravoy. It was a great discussion. Pleasure to be here. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orm. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Mary Marge Locker. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Christina Samuluski. The senior editor of Sway is Naima Raza, and the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio is Irene Noguchi. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, 
with a seat on Key Noah's Ark, and they're going to need a bigger boat because of climate change in Miami. Download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening.